we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Rich, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. We usually talk about science and medicine and COVID topics, but that's really only a departure point for possible things to discuss. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news, N-E-W-S dot news forward slash pulse, P-U-L-S-E. I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Drew Pinsky, Dr. Drew, as he's known, who is a very well-known media personality. Dr. Drew, like me, is a Californian by birth, and he did his medical training at USC and internal medicine residency at County Hospital in LA and at Huntington Memorial Hospital in Pasadena. Dr. Drew has remained in medical practice throughout his career while devoting a lot of his energies to his own and other radio, TV, film, and podcast appearances, and he's done a lot of public speaking on college campuses and other venues as well. And he has published a substantial number of books also. So, Drew, let's start. What's been on your mind lately? Well, I think like a lot of people, I'm trying to figure out the present moment. I, I am. Uh, I wake up every morning and I have to shake my head uh, in disbelief at many of the things I encounter during the day. And uh, I find myself... Uh, I, I, I've had this great good fortune of doing uh, a streaming show that you you very very graciously have been on a few times, where I interview interesting people, and I'm just learning more and more about the various nefarious processes that have been underway, uh, both from the standpoint of things I was observing during COVID in terms of how the medical system failed us, also in terms of there being a lot of cognitive warfare underwear, underway that we are falling victim to, and I'm sort of disgusted by all that. And I'm trying to understand these kinds of, uh, you know, I've lived long enough to see the sweep of history that I'm starting to un- try to understand what is the present moment we're seeing, and are there any antecedent uh, moments in history that can help inform me? So I've been sort of weirdly obsessed about things like early 20th century Russia and 1789 France and uh, just trying to trying to I thought we were through with many of the things that uh, history had uh, had had rendered. Uh, oh, yes, this was this is Fukuyama's the end of history. That's right. 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 And I didn't really believe it was the end of history. I just thought it was the end of stupidness, like the end of being stupid. Now I def- define the whole world as smart or stupid. I, I just it's it just easier for me. <laughs> I was I was having I had many, many different categories. But I woke up about three weeks ago. I said, no, it's just easier. Dumb uh, and smart. That's it. Those are the two categories I look at these days. Well, one of them is large and the other one is small. <laughs> unfortunately, yes. <laughs> it's unfortunately true. Ugh. It, it's, it's I, I mean, it's just uncanny, the, the circumstances we are all in. And, you know, we are roughly of the same vintage. And it, it, it just never occurred to me at this point in my life that this would be the kinds of phenomenology i would be preoccupied with it just just didn't even enter my my consciousness but when covid hit my my father was a old family practitioner he was full of wisdom and, and great practice and good just just great judgment and when covid hit i almost i could almost 
literally hear. I, I I was on the verge of hallucinating his voice in my head, going, "Hold, hold, wait, hold on." They they did they did what they they closed down they closed down the world for a respiratory a respiratory virus and they wait we had yellow fever and malaria and tuberculosis and polio and smallpox and, they, and smallpox and they and they closed the world for a respiratory virus what I it, it would have killed him again he would have dropped dead a second time right then so it, when when I had that so vividly in my head as the voices of the past sort of ringing it literally in my ears. I just started paying attention and I'm still trying to figure things out. Well, so right at the beginning of, of COVID, I thought, well, this is new, but we'll just treat it in a rational and standard public health approach that it, this was not our first trip around the block for respiratory pandemics. Mm -hmm. And we had principles and they were published and everybody knew these were authoritative mm -hmm. uh, papers. And there were whole volumes on public health and, and all this stuff. And why should this, you know, be any different? And then suddenly everything was flipped 180 degrees yeah. that, you know, and, and that, of course, made no sense. And I, for one, was bewildered and at why are we doing all this and who's telling us to do this? But as a good patriotic citizen, I figured, well, I'll go along with it for now. If they think locking down for two weeks is what's going to help this, even though it's the stupidest thing in the world that nobody ever said before to do, <laughs> um, but we'll we'll do it and see where where that goes. You know, then that lasted more than two weeks, and you know, and and it went downhill from there quite thoroughly. And, and yeah, quite. That's thorough. when indeed. Know, that's when. That that's when I started saying something is systematically not right here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I had the exact same experience when literally when Newsom said we're locking down, I, I was the whole time going, no, no, no. I, I had just had, must've been around the same time. I was doing a nightly news broadcast here in Los Angeles where I was trying to help people make sense of things or trying to get everybody to calm down. It was sort of my, my general tone, like just calm down. This is not, they're trying to get you excited. Don't, don't, it's not going to make things better. And uh, I, I had somebody from the school board come in and tell me live on television locally here in Los Angeles, we're going to close the schools down. And I said, who, there's, there's footage of me, thank God, saying this, one of my prouder moments. Who told you to do that? Where did that come from? Did you have some infectious disease panel come in and advise you? Some public health expert told you to? No, we just think it's the right thing to do. I thought, oh my God, we are in trouble. And then the next day, Newsom shut everything down. And at that point, I thought exactly as you did. I thought, all right, he's preparing for the worst case scenario. He's in a tough position. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a good citizen and support our leadership because I, I know it's wrong. But he's preparing for the worst, so okay, I'll, I'll let him do that. Never imagining we'd be shut down for two years. Just disgusting. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I want uh, license plate frames for my car saying California, the insane state. Uh, you know, it, it, people will just say, uh, it, wh why are you stating this, the same things twice? California <laughs> becomes synonymous for insanity. Hey, I do have a question for you. It just occurred to me when you were doing your intro on the, on the public health school. I noticed there, there's several things about public health that I, that I just, you know, have sort of come to the fore. Thank you, COVID. But one was 
when I was in training, only people that got um, MPH as Master of Public Health were people who were really interested in doing administrative medicine and doing public health and doing epidemiology. And they were sort of unusual. I noticed about 15, maybe even 20 years ago, all of a sudden I started seeing MPH after everybody's names. And I didn't, I didn't understand why. What, what is that trend, do you think? And it makes me wonder, did that preparing a bunch of hammers to encounter a nail add to the problem of this particular pandemic? So that's an astute observation. And the answer is yes. Uh, I don't know that you saw it probably sooner than I did, even though I was in, you know, in a school of public health and teaching MPH students. But what I saw is what I would say is parallel to what the journalism schools have done, uh-huh. which is instead of training people to be objective scientists processing information as logically as they can, they said, look, you have a position of power and you have a political bent, use your position of power for your political goals. In other words, training people for activism. So journalism school became activism school and corrupted all of the the major media. And the schools of public health, at least mine, and I would extrapolate to others, got a much larger fraction of people, especially after um, 9-11, of people who thought, well, we can apply a medical model to all the ills of society, to poverty, to crowding, to racism, to all of this, we will medicalize it. And once it's medicalized, just because we write it so in our papers in in the literature, Mm. then we can apply tools of public health to solve those problems. Meaning we can use public health enforcement to to bear on political problems. So it created a very large cadre of activists using public health tools for political goals. And, and then and, what, what motivated these kids to go? I mean, you know, usually you can kind of follow the money if there's something, some career objectives there that, that you know, are sort of motivating. That's kind of a direction that, you know, sends students one way or another. I What was, other than being, was it just the status of being an activist that was motivating them? No, I think people are messianistic, as I put it, that they're idealists, want to solve problems, think that their political views are, they're entitled to their political views, but they want to enforce them because they are not willing to actually debate the underlying issues and the tools needed to solve them, and therefore want to enforce their political views through activism. This is they. I think these people. I firmly believe in their own political views and their uh, authority to to do this. Well, the, the messianic uh, impulse, let's say, or, or or the preoccupation with the messianic impulses, is an a uniquely and distinctively adolescent psychological frame, which to me, yeah, other than. It, it being highly narcissistic, as of course uh, adolescents tend to be, but it sounds primitive and underdeveloped. Uh, I, I had seen that. I, I feel like we're moving past some of that a bit, uh, but I noticed about five years ago people framing some of the nonsense as uh, a, a messianic impulse. And indeed, 
to me, it just meant that these kids hadn't grown up. <laughs> That's really what it meant. Well, I think I think it's it's much deeper than that. I think we have cultural messianism that's that pervades socialism communism jihadism and even in judaism there there's messianistic impulse that's formulated then formalized you know in aspects of of what how we think and what we practice um it's just you know to have an aesthetic of messianism is one thing to enfranchise it in power to disturb the lives of other people is something totally different is you know, when I look at the this again, this the sweep of history, and certainly early 20th century Russia had this kind of thing going on that we're talking about. I'm I'm not clear that that's what it was in uh, pre-revolutionary France. I I don't know. Uh, uh, the definitely the narcissism in both cases. I I read a, a Lenin biography recently, and, and that messianic quality was definitely there in him. And I guess it was there in Robespierre as well. I mean, he he didn't care about anything else but the collective, the collective, the collective. You know, I only can experience my happiness through the collective. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, we want what's good for other people, right? Yeah. But 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 let me say that this goes back to something that you and I have have talked about, uh, and I've been and bugging me for forever now, which is the theorizing of everything that intellectuals turn observations, common sense observations into simplistic theories. And you're saying black or white, you know, adolescence and so on. All of this is is reducing things to simplistic theories and then operationalizing the world based on that rather than on actual perceptive observations and, 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 and critical thinking. Yes. So, so being more careful uh, with our present moment, can you, can you, can you take it apart in some other more uh, sort of um, specific ways? I guess it would be. You know, really, can we break it down to some more first principles about what's going on? Well, I would say there's very large scale interests that have gone messianistically rogue in thinking that they can take over the control of the world. Is, is it a power impulse? I mean, what, what's the sort of, if you look beneath, what's the motivation other than I'm the Messiah, I only do good, I'm a great thing? Oh, well, I think power is a good, a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I think that we are wired to try to accumulate power as a way of controlling nature and reducing threats to our existence. Sure, makes sense. Right, and, and it seems like we also have an impulse towards hierarchies, even though the present moment insists that hierarchies are bad. They, they're establishing their own hierarchies. Right. Uh, you know, I can't speak to that very well. Yeah. Um, you're much more widely read on that than I am. But, uh, but I, I think that the so we have one side of of this power game that's being played by actors who aren't necessarily completely aligned with each other. You have the the globalist businesses, you have the military that's doing something totally different, but can use the the globalists as tools for its goals. Um, And you have, uh, I I think those are the, the main, and then you have the people like World Economic Forum that's trying to carve its way into this system without the resources that would establish it in the first place. In other mm. words, um, Klaus Schwab is is an heir to a small fortune, um, but not at the level of the globalist fortunes of the people he's trying to get 
you know, at the top of the World Economic Forum. Huh. And so he's trying to be the, the conductor of the orchestra here to get the power that he wouldn't necessarily have if he were the head of, of Pfizer or, or, or Bill Gates or something like that. Huh. It, it, I, the more I think about it, the more distasteful I find it. It's just... Well, right. But so the question really is, it's, you know, the, the, the 200 or, or 1,000 of them with their immense resources versus the 8 billion of us. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the tools that they have and the tools that we have are very different. And that's why there's a, a kind of a stalemate. Democracies are very tolerant, overly tolerant of assaults on them until they reach breaking points. Mm. And we've been very tolerant of all the insults to our rights, freedoms, bodily integrity, and other things yeah. over the COVID yeah. period. Oh, my God. But yeah, are we, aren't we at the breaking point? Don't you think? I think people are very much. I think that that, that most average people out in society, if you just push them a little bit, they'll start yelling back at you that they can't take it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because like, all of this has been happening, and and they've been bottling it up. Remember Network, the movie with the the anchor suddenly starts screaming into the camera. It's, I want you to go out there and scream. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> right. It leans out the window. Right. That, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, I, but I, the part that 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 mm, I have the strongest emotional reaction to is within the eight billion of us, the what uh, Lenin called the useful idiots. And to me today, the useful idiots are the people that seem to be piling on to the various propaganda winds that get blown, and. I think my, lately I've been thinking that we need to figure out a way to get people to understand that oftentimes many of these viral anythings, reactions of any type, are coming from outside. They're coming from China. They're coming from Russia. And that it's then it's the useful idiots that really make it dangerous. Yes. Well, actually, we got we got a, a, to a commercial breakpoint. So let's take a pause, and we'll be back uh, very shortly. Please stay tuned. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Drew Pinsky. So we were just talking about useful idiocy. Yeah. 
bothers me the most. And I, and I don't even mean that disparagingly because because they, they are unwittingly become uh, uh, useful to to the various propaganda wins. And and the you know the, I understand brainwashing is effective, but I want everyone that has fallen victim to the brainwashing to be not just ashamed of themselves disgusted with themselves so they they because disgust is a very powerful motivator shame you kind of you shrink from disgust you move away you move you put your so i want you to move away from that behavior and really think of how disgusting it is that you're doing the work of the people's liberation army you're doing yes. it here in this country yes so um you know uh sharansky in, in one of his books talks about life under communism, where he says that about 30% of the population knows what's going on and only talks about it amongst themselves and is, is secret about it. Sure. And 30% of the population goes along with it because they believe in it, basically. They've been brainwashed enough to not question it. And then there's 40% in the middle that are kind of semi-useful idiots that know something isn't quite right, but they don't know enough to be able to push back any, and they're threatened by even thinking about pushing back any, and so they right. don't. Right. And so this is why it's very difficult to break through, but the middle group is is the one that's fertile ground, and not the 30% that believes in it and wants to be the next commissar of X. <laughs> well, you know? I... I so that's good. That's actually a really good frame because uh, it 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 helps me. You know, when as I go out there and try to communicate and help raise awareness about things, who I really want to reach. It's a really good point. Uh, I always think of it as the thirty percent that are motivated, uh, but that forty percent in the middle. I, I keep thinking they're going to come around, but but you're right. They they need to be de-siloized, whatever that is. Get out of their silos, whatever silo they're in. They have to be unthreatened. They have to. They have to have their fear removed. I don't know. It's really well. It's settling. I think the fear is reducing with just time itself. People are more able or more apt to just say things now that you even six months ago you couldn't say. I, I'm hearing more sort of frank to conversation about topics that were forbidden six months ago. It's so weird. That's interesting. I, th I think I'm not. You know, people email me, but you have more direct media conversations, so that's good to know. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that, you know, the rate that this is happening is very slow. I'm glad that it's plus, it's not zero, yeah. but it's it seems pretty slow. And I think that's because the levers of media that we have are fairly limited Mm -hmm. compared to all the propaganda that's been put out. And this goes back to what I was saying before about whose interests are being served here. The military, which has a motivation for covering up its nefarious 30 years of history in bio-warfare research yeah. versus that, that, that exploded in, in 2019 versus all the other companies that want to rush in and make trillions of dollars over the military's you know, explosion. Exactly, and take over the world at the same and time. The then also the politicians that are, you know, hanging on to power, you know, really sort of using any self-serving messaging they could possibly get their hands on just to keep power, which is well, again, you know, there when COVID started, there were twenty-one doctors in Congress. Mm. Not one of them stood up for early outpatient treatment. Mm. And we badgered them and badgered them. And I concluded they did this because they all have pharma money in their packs. 
Ugh. Well, that's where I became kind of, you know, really who opened my eyes to some of these excesses is RFK Jr. That, that's where I got interested. And he was, he really, I interviewed him a couple of times and I thought, my God, I had no idea. But when you think about it, it's obvious that it's that kind of cozy. Uh, going back and forth between executive positions in the pharma companies and CDC, NIH, FDA. Well, regulatory capture, that's right. Regulatory capture. And he, the part that I'm not as familiar with and, and that he has been emphasizing of late is that the same thing happens in almost every industry, and particularly in the military uh, industrial phenomenon or the military industrial complex, so-called, which which sort of horrifies me. <laughs> I sort of I hate to even think about that. But I guess I should be just as horrified that the medical system is captured the same way. Well, it, it makes sense that the people, if it takes a lot of education and training to work in the regulatory industry, yeah. then where else, Then and it's a pyramid system, where else are you going to go with your career yeah. if you don't want to stay static in your job for the whole career? No, that's right. It makes it makes good sense. It, it's understandable. Listen, I I don't believe that there's premeditated nefarious kinds of people operating. I, I think it it creates nefarious interests uh, and nefarious decision making. But it, it's not like you're a bad person. I get why they did I, why it happens. I, I totally get it. Uh, but it's it's still gravely disturbing gravely disturbed we have we have to do something to unravel this stuff because it, it's gotten now particularly at the level of the uh, the publications it's just now it's ridiculous you can you can well medical publication is a shambles it's it's a wild west chaos of bias and uh, and corruption yeah what happened to epidemiology when i was in training epidemiology was a very careful discipline <laughs> what happened uh, what I think happened is everybody thought they were an epidemiologist. Basically, people think epidemiology has no content. They they think, oh, you just grab some cases and you grab some controls and you do your statistical magic and get results and then you've proven causation. Ooh. And nobody understands the fundamental principles of epidemiology. And in fact, for 10 years while I was teaching the, a course on advanced epidemiologic research methods, which is a uh, a third level course for our PhD students in epidemiology. The first class, I would ask the students, what is scientific about epidemiology? What's the scientific basis of epidemiology? And they would say, oh, person, place, and time. And I'd say, no, that's descriptive. It's not scientific. What's scientific? Right. Where's the, uh, where do you apply the scientific method? Right. And uh, one student out of all the students that I had over 10 years came close and the essence of what's scientific about epidemiology is that we don't study entire populations. We study samples of people with disease and samples of people in the population. Nevertheless, we want to conclude about how disease works and how it works in a whole population. And so we have to extrapolate. We have to generalize from our samples to the disease and to the population. And that generalization requires representativeness of our samples. And so we agonize over the representativeness and unbiasedness of how we sample, how we get those cases and get those controls. And that that uh, professional anxiety and agony over all of that science is what's scientific about epidemiology. All the rest is statistics, genetic technology, measurement, lab stuff. That's not epidemiology, that's our technology. Right. Our scientific questions are being able to say that something we 
find in the result of a study applies to the disease that we're actually studying. And, and then being extremely cautious about your assumptions and about uh, being critical of the conclusions you make, you know, where are the weaknesses in your, either your sample or your extrapolation. I, I, that's what I remember is, is the, the epidemiologists I knew back in the day were always asking questions. They, they weren't, they weren't really pronouncing from on high <laughs> the way so massively and suddenly they became soothsayers. They became predictors of the future of all mankind. Like what? Well, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I think we do have methods for uh, inferring causality of the things that we measure in epidemiology, but it's not, this study shows an association and therefore we're done. It, it yeah. goes back to Sir Austin Bradford Hill, 1965, and the methodology and the aspects of causal reasoning that he worked yeah. out yeah. and discussed and that we have followed ever since, yeah. pluses or minuses with all of that. But there are major principles in there that have to be followed, including repetition, 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 and not just single studies. But we reproducing. Reproduce the same findings in diverse populations, diverse places, diverse ethnicities, diverse yeah. people, and so on. It, and it, it feels like it's also moved more towards this sort of modeling uh, preoccupation with some sort of uh, extreme faith in the models. Rather than rather than a skeptical uh, humility, I'm I'm laughing because my PhD was in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics, huh. and I published a paper in that. It was it was a really nice result, and then I did a postdoc in Seattle, uh, the School of Public Health, and this is right when the toxic shock syndrome epidemic happened, yeah. and I was trying to get data from the various state departments of health to model toxic shock syndrome epidemic. And I got some and was doing this and thought I had some pretty good fits of, of, of the equations. And then I had a conversation with Michael Osterholm, who was, I think, head of public health in Minnesota or Michigan, something like that, who convinced me that the CDC was only getting data from about 40% of the states, <laughs> not all of them, and therefore it was unreliable. And I concluded that with four parameters, I can fit anything. Uh. And I didn't realize, of course, that a few generations before this, John von Neumann had said that with, with, with five parameters or four parameters, I could fit anything. And with an extra one, I can I, I could make the elephant's trunk wiggle. So, <laughs> <laughs> von Neumann was a, was a physicist, wasn't he? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's... Um, so, so models are garbage in, garbage out completely. Yeah. That they are exquisitely sensitive to the assumptions that you put in, yeah. and they can be chaotic, which means that if you put in a parameter that is just microscopically away from the real applicable true value, you get very divergent model behavior. Right. It, and for that reason, they are completely untrustworthy. Right. And yet, here we just threw through an epidemic when uh, I don't think any politician has yet learned that the models in which they were basing their decision-making was unreliable or should have been considered unreliable no matter how good they were? Well, the Oxford models that said there were going to be tens of or hundreds of millions of people dead and everybody freaked out yep. were off by, a, you know, two orders of magnitude. He, just finally, to start with. he finally brought it down to one million, right, didn't he? 
or two million or something like that. Oh, yeah. that was after we already knew that there were one million. Yeah, maybe true. <laughs> but but I remember it started getting close to reality, and then it became the rallying cry: "This thing killed a million people." It's like, yeah, right. yeah it, epidemics kill lots of people. That's what pandemics do. This is this is it. This the, in on the physician side, there became this very strange thinking where one death was too many. Well, I, I, then we're not in a pandemic anymore. If one day, well, this is a very interesting question. Yeah. It, the question is, what are we willing to tolerate as a society for mortality that we take for granted? The answer to that is look at the empirical things that cause death in society. So, for example, um, we have um, influenza, some yeah. twenty to forty thousand deaths a year, depending on on the season. Okay, we generally take that for granted. Mm -hmm. um we have you have um uh drug you know overdose deaths that's running now close to 100,000 per year there's some discussion of we have to deal with that that's too many for us to take for granted you have firearms injuries deaths that runs about 50,000 deaths a year of which about two-thirds are suicides and one-third are criminal mm -hmm. and that has been a stable statistic for a long time. Nobody, so ever, all of these, ever, no one ever talks, no one ever talks about suicide. Right. All, all these things are things that society takes for granted. You know, there's 10,000 um, common cold deaths a year. We take that for granted. What's worse, however, is tobacco deaths because tobacco causes 500,000 deaths per year. And when used, it, when the product's used as intended, and these are people who die at the end of life, 10 years earlier than they would have otherwise, when they're collecting Social Security. The average Social Security payout is $20,000 a year, so you mul and, they, and it shortens life by about 10 years. So you multiply 500,000 people times $20,000 per year times 10 years, and you get $100 billion a year that the government saves in not paying Social Security. Yep, yep. And every member of Congress knows this, and that's why there's never been any effort to change what happens, you know, how to protect people, how to protect society from all this tobacco damage. And the society takes it in stride and never questions that. Half a million deaths a year, year in, year out from tobacco. And look at what COVID did. Did COVID even come close to that during the massive wave in the first year? It approached that. Well, and, well, and, and, and then people do not, they, they have all kinds of crazy thinking that I encounter on a regular basis about aging and end of life. So uh, it's as though no one's ever going to get old. No one's ever going to get feeble. No one's ever going to have illness. It's just the strangest thing. And when confronted with it during COVID, it, they developed this safety Uber Alice attitude. Safety is the one and only virtue for human existence. Safety Uber Alice, which is that is no longer living. We're not living anymore at that point. That, that, well, that, it's worse. It's worse because it's back to intellectual black-white theorizing yeah. instead of the subtleties uh, and the logic and the critical thought. That's right. I, exactly. Right. So I, I was trying to raise awareness back, you know, as soon as it became uh, no longer forbidden to say that COVID uh, affected predominantly the elderly and the, the ill, that, you know, there was we did a terrible job of protecting people in nursing homes, right? And yet, one of the the sort of um, statistical uh, findings I wanted people to understand, just so they thought about it, that the average life expectancy for a male admitted to a nursing home, a male who needs institutional care, 
not because he fractured his hip and needs a couple weeks of rehab. No, the male whose life, his aging has caused sufficient deterioration that he now needs help with eating, help with turning, help with bathing and, and uh, bathroom, that kind of thing. Uh, and usually it's, you know, if you need institutional sports because you need two people to do that, average life expectancy, six months. So you're, you're saving six months of life as opposed to years, decades of life lost or productivity lost or impoverishment caused by harming people at a younger age. And the same thing applies now to the vaccine. I don't understand the the push, push, push with the vaccine for young people who don't need it. it it's not they don't they're not harmed by the illness. I, it's so hard for me to understand this. Oh, I agree. I mean, I got into a discussion, disagreement with my dean in the School of Public Health early in the pandemic, saying that we should not be vaccinating young children, and. He, he said, yeah, but children are dying. I said, yeah, but it's only children with severe comorbidities that are dying. Healthy children are dying. Not. And, you know, that that, that uh, he said, but we should still do it because it's safe. And I said, well, what do you think is going to happen when we vaccinate 74 million children? Yeah. You know, right. it's not going to be safe at that level. You're going to find something. Yeah, of course. Any you can, right. you can pick any medical intervention and do it to 50 million people and something will go haywire. A lot. That's right. So we've gotten to another pause point. So let's take a commercial break and we'll be back very shortly. Please stay tuned. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD.
Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Drew Pinsky. We were just discussing um, that anything one does in large numbers is going to have some degree of adverse events. Yeah. And uh, this is my analogy of uh, bridge engineering and public health, that if you build a bridge and it's 99.99% safe, is that good enough? Right. And the answer to that is, is it a diagnosis bridge or a screening bridge? Meaning that if 100,000 people go over this bridge every day, then uh, what is it? 10 are going to drop off into the, the river. And the, the 10 out of 100,000 means if you have to go across the bridge to go to the grocery store, you're not going to think twice about it. You're just going to drive across the bridge. Yeah. But over a year, more than 3,000 people are going to get killed on this bridge. And so at the same time, you think the bridge is safe for you. You're going to say this is one of the worst bridges you've ever known about and should be you know, fixed to, to get rid of that, that high mortality. It's a dangerous bridge. Yeah. And this is what we face in public health, that when we have screening uh, behaviors and, and, and policies, as in pandemic management, when we want to, say, vaccinate an entire population, anything you do with 300 or 330 million people that isn't exquisitely safe, not just generally safe, but exquisitely safe, is going to create tens or hundreds of thousands or more of seriously affected individuals. And we have never tolerated that degree of unsafeness in any previous vaccines that we have used in general use in, in the country, in the United States. And what do we think that, is that hysteria that suddenly we think that's okay? I think it's intimidation and fear. I think that we've been, you know, the fifth generation psyops warfare that had the government, the security state has pushed onto the population through the controlled media has generated just grossly excessive fear and anxiety. You see this in people wearing masks outdoors in their cars when they're alone and so on, still wearing masks. So crazy. I just wonder what we're, we've done to people. And now we look, have, look yeah. at the um, look at the, the protest uh, at Harvard on, on uh, October 8th. All these people out there protesting outdoors, half of them wearing masks. It's, it's, become, it's, a absurd. Talisman. it's become a talisman. It's become a, a signal. It, That's it, right. It, it's a virtue signal. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there, the, to my knowledge, there have been two outdoor documented transmissions of COVID in the world. Two cases. Is there is there more than that somewhere? Well, there was the Provincetown um, uh, epidemic the, that spread. This was it was in Delta period or or just before that, where no, yes, it was in, in vaccinated people largely vaccinated people. And I think it was a, a congested but outdoor activities that, that it spread in. Hmm. And uh, so, so there may have been some of those besides that one, but that one was one of the first signals that we knew that vaccinated people could spread the infection. I still, I, I would have to look at that because I'm, I'm skeptical that the air, all you need is moving air and the aerosols are, dissipated uh, and so it just it, it, a door open is often sufficient that's interesting and so for me it's it's thinking about how many air changes per hour mm. that that slow moving air has to compete with large doses of sneezing or coughing mm -hmm. that, that it's possible that you can be a downwind or b multiple people 
can be filling up the, the, the local air and it takes five, 10 minutes for it to diffuse away. And so in the meantime, you could get exposed. Have you ever spoken to that woman that uh, John Campbell interviewed? Uh, I think it's, I think her last name was Claire, Dr. Claire or Dr. Claire something. Um, she is a, a British pathologist, very nice, very smart woman. And she, you know, threw the flag early in the pandemic that something was remiss and started studying the history of these preoccupations with um, fluid transmission versus aerosol transmissions and why the notion of an aerosol transmission is so difficult for people to uh, stay with. And uh, she would, her theory was that when the germ theory evolved, there was a long political battle where public health and other officials would not adopt the idea that there was contamination of fluid or uh, any kind of uh, contact that would cause a bacterial transmission, uh, that it was still some sort of vapor. And they said they actually thought it was transmitted in smells. And when they finally were able to confirm Cox postulates and sort of show that this was actually more fluid, uh, their contact with body fluids was more the issue, it made the anyone who had any notion of the miasma transmission, they called it, um, sort of uh, reprehensible. They, they were somehow beyond reproach. And so for a hundred years, apparently, you couldn't contemplate an aerosol transmission because of this bias. And there still seems to be bias against that. Uh, and the this is a you know the, the 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 so people that want to wear a surgical mask will always say, well, there's spit and there's fluid and it's coming at your like no no no, it's an aerosol that travels sixty feet and practically maybe more more efficient at ca catching you when you walk through ten minutes later, not the spit and the guy's uh, uh, speech. Well, they say that um, scientific theories die one funeral at a time. They change one funeral at a time yeah. that people hold on to their theories well beyond their their effective lifespan of the theory yeah. that um i think that um people analogize to the operating theater and don't realize that surgeons wear masks to protect from bacterial contamination not yeah. viruses yeah they, from their fluid from their mouth from dropping into the surgical field nothing right. to do with viruses whatsoever whatsoever right, right. Uh, and so you know when people when when in my like here in la county they are now requiring masks again in uh, medical caretaking environments and my you know i'm like oh here we go it has no basis there's no there's no science for it it's again a political maneuver but i at least for people that wish to wear them I, well please wear an n95 and make sure it's completely form-fitting uh and if you take it off to um, drink some water or to have some potato chips, or I can see a, uh, a, a jet of um, condensation on your glasses, then the whole affair is useless. You've, you've completely right. wasted your time. And I just want you please at least to acknowledge that. Then, then proceed. If you want to be perfect and wear your mask, good. Good on you. If that's important to you, fine. Otherwise, don't pretend. It's pretend. It's true. There's only been, you know, in, in respiratory virus transmission, there's only been three studies that I know of that have looked at source control. That does your wearing a mask affect me, my risk? And the answer to all three is no. 
that it's essentially negligible or zero at best. And so there's no point. Now, whether wearing a mask for a person protects that person, um, that's a different question. Uh, I have some N95 masks because I use them because I do woodworking as a hobby. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Keep chips out of your nose. That's right. Um, That's what they were made for. They were made for construction dust. Yeah, which is a few orders of magnitude larger than virus particles. Yeah, I think it was you that said that it's like trying to catch a mosquito with a with a chain link fence. Yes, <laughs> graphic. It's true. That's the problem that that people have these simplistic ideas that if you put something in front of your mouth and nose, that it's going to block things because it's in front of your mouth and nose. Yeah. you know. And, but, but we've allowed these primitive ideas to persist and, and we've reinforced them and we bring them back and people are unwilling to look at the science. It is, I, I, can't, I can't understand it. I can't understand why we can't move this forward. Because the real science is being censored. Basically, the people who are in control of the science messages have a vested interest in their corrupted science messages for their uh, ulterior, ulterior, you know, motivations, and and so they don't allow it. Not has anybody ever, ever debate throughout COVID debated any of the things that we have argued against. The answer is yes, once, and that was a debate between my dean Stan Vermund and um, Jay Bhattacharya in New York City about lockdowns in front of this private New York. Um, dinner club event, and they, they they did this debate, and then the, then the, the event goers voted who they thought won the debate at the end, and it was about three to one for Jay that the lockdowns were not useful. I I did not even know about this. That's fascinating. Can he, can he is he allowed to talk about that event? Is it something private? He is, and I think there is an audio file of it on the internet, which I could try to find. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, uh, again, the, the fact that the, the people that were silenced were guys like Jay is just, <laughs> just laughable. It's And it, it also speaks of the nefarious motivation that was afoot. Some, something was not. Well, as I said, censorship is a tool that's the last-ditch effort for people who know they can't defend their positions. Right. Well, you can also do an ad hominem uh, or, you know, sort of attack. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's, I, but, these days, is part of censorship. Right. But the point is that when somebody censors, they're basically telling you that they've lost. Yeah. The, the conclusion is you, you've lost this argument. You've lost this debate because if you had real evidence to debate with, you would have used that instead. Yeah. And yet if you were the object of that, let's use the more current term con- cancellation, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't feel like you've won the debate. Well, it depends, you know, if you poll 100 listeners and see what they think. Yeah. You know, you you might see that the, the people actually think you had something to say and weren't let able to say it. Where do you imagine we're going? What's your sort of feeling about things? I think that the nefarious powers that pushed this on us are desperately hoping that it will fade away. Yeah. That they they think they've gotten away with almost everything that they wanted. Yeah. They would like it to continue, but they recognize it's unrealistic to expect the country to get 90% vaccinated with each booster that comes out every three months. And so they are, they are trying to jet morph that into mRNA 
vaccines for other illnesses that suddenly get ratcheted up into the fear level, like RSV, the, mm. the, the latest fear porn version, or JN1 has got 55 mutations. You should all be afraid of it, Jeez. you know, and therefore go out and get another vaccine that doesn't even apply to it. Right. Uh, I, I, that's, that's shocking to me. That, that's just my mind boggling. And especially if you're 22 years old with zero risk from the, from the JN1. That's right. That's right. That, well, almost everybody, nobody's got risk from Omicron now. Omicron was, was, was the end of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, there, the Overton window is increasing because it's we've spent four years trying to say what we've been able to say, and some of that has gotten out. And it may and it may take another four or ten years. The legal cases are very important to also get into public domain, and people are hearing that. There's lots of skepticism, but here and there you pick up a convert, so to speak, from the middle forty percent. And it's very important now that I, I do painted it that way. I see that as, as a really crucial effort, but you know, when it, when it comes to, um, uh, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. That is the aging brain or COVID brain or maybe vaccine brain. Who knows? Uh, right. I know I have that too. Uh, you know, the, these legal cases against, um, the government and a, yeah. against individuals and against companies for for their misrepresentations and they're lying basically about what they were representing safe and effective was not safe and effective you know because they were misrepresenting what it was safe and effective for right the government was claiming it was safe and effective for transmission it was never tested for transmission it was tested for infection I, I know what I, I wanted to say now. I, I, I was talking to Jeffrey Tucker a couple of days ago, and I was saying, "Listen, this um, push for Nuremberg 2.0 or whatever the whatever people are calling it is a grave mistake because obviously, if you are threatening people who have had varying degrees of distortion, uh, whether they were misled or they were nefarious, what, whatever their reason for um, creating harm." If you threaten them with really serious consequences, they are going to re fight with everything they have to shut down further discussion. And the pursuit of the truth of what happened is going to be shut down for the most part in this sort of gridlock of uh, people trying to protect themselves from serious consequences. So I, I've been saying, listen, for sure, the institutions need to be held accountable. If there are young people that... Uh, were hurt by the vaccine because they were mandated in order to go to college, or if there are high, highly qualified professionals who lost their jobs, like Aaron Cariotti, who free speech was specifically uh, suppressed. This is where we need to focus the legal action. And then the rest of us need to just consistently work on getting discourse and towards some approximation of the truth. Well, I would favor that about 75%. And the other about 25%. And what I think needs to be done is a carefully curated list of the top villain, villains who are really responsible for inflicting this when they knew better. And, and they did this for personal, political, or other gain that those people need to be held accountable. 
And the whole and, world, the whole world adopted this. That's the part. I, I, the, the whole time I kept thinking, I understand the craziness of our country, but the whole world went this way. That's sure, because our we fear porn the whole world. We yeah. fear porn, you know, governments, uh, you know, presidents and, and prime ministers of other countries. Well, and and you know, if you read, have you ever seen Michael? Is his name Michael Singer? Michael Singer's book, uh, um, Snake Oil Science. It, no, but I, I gather yeah. a lot of good evidence that it was really China, again with their propaganda machines, that was the really behind a lot of this. And then again, it was the useful idiots that that jumped on it and kept going. So it, it it's obvious, and I've spoken to people who actually worked on it in China. You know, people they were engineering coronaviruses. That's what they were doing. There's still a question of how collaborative it was with us or Russia or whatever. I, it's, that's still a kind of a, a mystery to me. I'm, I'm sure we were involved oh, in some way. We invented it. Yeah, right. You know, we enabled the Chinese to do the to do the lab work, but it, but our principles were shipped off to them. I don't know whether they thought they were stealing our intellectual property or we just gave it to them. I think we just gave it to them. Genetic sequence um, information proves that it was bioengineered beyond any statistical doubt, that the sequence of 19 nucleotides around the furin cleavage site and and the, the um, enzyme landing site adjacent to it uh, is too long to be, um, you know, probabilistic that uh, it only occurs in SARS-CoV-2 and in a Moderna patent, identical 19 long sequence in a Moderna patent from 2017 and earlier from the HMSH3 gene, which is used as part of the culturing system to get the virus to reproduce. And so all, so there's no possible way that the sequence could have gotten in, statistically speaking, it's like P to the 10 minus 20 or something like that, 10 to the minus 20. There's just no way. It was bioengineered. There's no and, question. And, the, and then, then the the readiness, the ready to hand nature of this uh, spike mRNA vaccine. And, and to me, you know, the other question I keep asking is, well, I understand why we would have readied a spike mRNA vaccine, you know, for an emergency and the emergency came and they ramped it up. And I get that. And it, I, I do have a suspicion that it helped interrupt the Alpha Delta uh, phase of this. Uh, but once we had wrapped that up, why are we insisting on exposing people to high levels of the pathogenic protein? I mean, this is the this is the part of the virus that does harm. Why don't we go for the whole virus, like the Covaxin vaccine? Or why don't we go for something that hits the nucleocapsid? Why do we continue to expose people to the pathogenic component of the virus? That's the craziness in right. my mind. Right. We've been asking that question also. And, and that's going to have to be for another conversation because we've actually run out of time. Oh, no. And, oh, so, <laughs> so I hope everybody's enjoyed our discussion. And if you have questions, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. Um, Drew, this is really uh, a great discussion and we'll have to continue it. And thanks everybody for listening and please come back again next week. Bye.